Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Natalie Boutet. Natalie Boutet, based in Toronto, is an experienced family law lawyer, accredited mediator, and certified family enterprise advisor, skilled at providing unique strategies and out-of-court results to the complex legal, financial, and human matters related to separation or divorce for high net worth families and business owners. In my interview with Natalie, we discuss why you might consider having your partner sign a cohabitation agreement when moving in together, what's a matrimonial home, and the property rights of common law partners versus married spouses. Without further ado, here's my interview with Natalie Boutet. Hi Natalie, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm great Sean, how are you doing? Pretty good, thanks. Looking forward to our conversation today on family law as it relates to real estate because I find that it's an area of real estate and the law that people have a lot of questions about, but they don't always have the answers. So looking forward to you sharing your expertise with our listeners and helping answer some of those burning questions that people have. Yes, definitely, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. Issues are are, um, quite appropriate for people that uh, are interested in real estate, and I'm sure we'll have a great conversation today. I'm pretty excited to uh, share some of my experience as well with your listeners. Wonderful. Well, let's get started. So my first question for you is, what is a cohabitation agreement and why is it important to have one when moving in with your partner? Right. Well, thanks for asking that great question. I'd like to start by saying that my expertise relates to Ontario law only. So I know you have a broad uh, audience. So if you're outside of Ontario, please make sure you check with a local lawyer to see if this is the same uh, law that applies to your region. And also these areas of law are really complicated and we're going to be just touching on some issues. So please don't treat this as a personal Uh, legal advice. Uh, It is just general information uh, and uh, it is really good for you to verify this with someone uh, that would be able to understand all of your circumstances. So uh, with that in mind, a cohabitation agreement is a legally binding contract that two people enter into when they're going to be residing together and it regulates what's going to happen to their assets if they end up separating. It is, uh, it's relevant because when you have real estate involved, if uh, one person is the owner or if both people are the owner, you want to understand, okay, when we are uh, getting along with each other, no problem, we can make deals along the way about who pays what and whatnot. But if we end up separating and it gets acrimonious between us, who's going to stay in the house, who's going to move out, who's going to get what part of the value of the house and whatnot. So a uh, cohabitation agreement is a domestic agreement signed by two parties that are going to be living together in an intimate relationship to govern how they will divide up their assets in the event of their death when they're together or in the event of a separation. 
Great. Thanks for explaining that in such a clear manner. A common situation in real estate is, let's say that two people decide to move in together, two people in a relationship, and one person owns a property already. You know, maybe that's their matrimonial home and they're living on their own and then their other partner moves in, but they're just in a common law relationship. I would presume that a cohabitation agreement would cover that. And perhaps without one, then it might be different how you would divide the asset. Do I have a correct understanding of that? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe what I'll do is I'll share with an experience of a real case that I was working on because it really is going to show the the very common thing that can happen to people that move in together. So I had a situation where my client was the uh, female and she was the owner of the property and then her boyfriend moved in and he happened to be very handy. So he ended up over the course of the years doing a lot of renovation. I think they redid their floor in the kitchen. They might have done a um, bathroom renovation if I'm not mistaken. And also they had a really great landscaping that they had done in the back. And when they separated, he thought that he was doing all of this to give him a little bit of the value of the property. And she thought, well, no, I paid for all the materials. You lived there for free. Wouldn't that be enough compensation? And so they had a completely different expectation of what was going to happen if there was a separation. And of course, people don't rush into relationship to talk about their financial affairs. You know, finance seems to be a little bit of a difficult conversation, especially when you're just starting out in a relationship. You don't say, you know, here's a list of all my assets and here are my expectations. It's kind of a vicious circle because we know that these are difficult conversations to have, but we also know that not having these difficult conversations is what lead people into a lot of trouble. In that situation, it ended up costing them a lot of money to sort out who had the right to what. They would have benefited from perhaps taking a step back when they were moving in together to say, okay, well, what are my expectations? What are your expectations? Or if if you're very handy and you're going to do a lot of work on someone's property, what are you doing it for? Is it gratuitous because you get other types of benefits? Or is this something that should result in you having a share of the value of the property and whatnot? So you can see how people can get in trouble if they don't have a clear understanding. Yes, and I guess it's kind of just better to have that conversation up front so that there aren't any hurt feelings or confusion or anything like that. So that's an excellent point that you raised. And that kind of leads perfectly into my next question. Asking your partner to sign a cohabitation agreement can be a little awkward. And I guess a cohabitation agreement could have avoided that whole situation in the first case that you mentioned. So any suggestions on how to start the conversation in a less tense way? And, And perhaps you could just explain what a cohabitation agreement is and how that could have made the first situation a bit better for both of the parties involved. Yeah. So there's different segments of the population that get together. So there's younger couples, it's their first time around, and then there's older couples where it's the second or third time around. And depending on where you situate yourself, if you're young and and in love and full of beans, you might not think about it. If you're older and you've been bitten before by a, a nasty fight, you might say, oh my God, I need to do it differently the next time around. So what I'm going to say might resonate differently depending on the segment of the population that's listening. But what I want to say is relationships are really important to people. They want to be happy. They want it to work. They want it to be fair. And there's this thing in our society 
where we're all nervous to talk about our expectations. And I am a family law lawyer of 30 years, and I do a lot of mediation as well, where I speak to both couples, to the both person, you know, persons in the couple. And I know that people don't talk about their expectations. So you're asking me how, what, what's the trick? The trick is to really honor your relationship and your, and your desire to make it work and to say, I know this is hard for me to discuss this, but it's going to make a big difference to the solidity of my relationship. Because if I can't talk about something difficult, then what are we going to do as a couple when we encounter our first bump? We're not going to have any practice going through a difficult conversation and whatnot. So there's only positive that can happen by having these difficult conversations. And I want to give you an example. So I'm, I can talk to you for days because I have so many examples of things going wrong and, and how people could have avoided them. So I have this, this person who works with me as a client. He's pretty wealthy and he is so excited because he met the woman of his dreams and other relationships before. It didn't work, but this one was the one he was sure. She was so lovely. And he proposed to her because he was so in love with her. And lo and behold, he retains me to start working on a marriage agreement because they're going to get married now. And I said, have you never discussed with her that you're going to want her to sign this? He said, oh, no, no, no. She's, okay. She's going to be okay with it. Don't worry. Just get it done and we'll sign it before the marriage. All kinds of concerns in my in my mind about that but anyways I, I work on it and then finally he goes to speak to her about it and she ended the relationship right oh, oh my so, goodness that's pretty extreme I <laughs> know but it happens so that one do you think it's his fault for not doing it in a yeah, uh, friendly manner right he was in love and he really believed what she had been saying that she was in love with him and it's not about the money but when push came to shove she just couldn't do it she just couldn't get involved into a relationship where they had to structure finances and so that's that was that's a big eye opener for people to say oh my god i don't want that to happen to me what I stand for, Sean, is I don't want people to count pennies. I hate that. I don't want people to keep their friggin' receipts from buying this and buying that. I don't like that. I don't think that creates a good foundation for the relationship. But without clear understanding, people are nervous. So they keep their little receipts and they keep tabs and they keep, you know, you, I put, you know, I paid $5 more and, and this and that. So that would make me crazy if I was in a relationship like that. To your listeners, roll up your sleeves. If you need to speak to a counselor to organize your thoughts about what you're looking for in a relationship, that's fine. That would be very helpful. But do have this difficult conversation of, you know, you're coming to live with me. It's my house. You know, my parents helped me with it or I work really hard for it. And not that I don't love you. I love you and I want our relationship to work. But I do, I do want us to be frank about the possibility that this is not going to work out. And... I want to I want to have a very uh, loving relationship and I want to have a, a very honest conversation about what are our expectations, right? What's our expectation if we are together for three years? What's our expectation if we're together for 20 years? What's our expectation if we have children? What's our expectation if someone gets sick and can't contribute financially, right? So just to have a, a conversation around expectations is very, very helpful, very telling. And uh, I had a, another client who um, was a, unfortunately a repeat client of mine because his relationships didn't work, but he was very frank. When he would go out on a date very early on, he would say, 
I come with a marriage agreement or a cohabitation agreement. And that's very healthy because you would know from the get-go that the person understands that and they are going to continue the, the courtship into understanding that they're going to have to talk about finances and how to organize themselves if they go to the next level. We've definitely explained uh, how the cohabitation agreement works. So let's just talk about the matrimonial home, which is a term that I've heard. So could you explain what is a matrimonial home and why does it matter? And a follow-up question to that, that you can answer at the same time. Right. Do common law partners have the same property rights as married spouses? Right. Very good questions. The law in Ontario that governs property division is called the Family Law Act. And it has the definition of matrimonial home in there, and it applies only to married couples. So married couples have a a system of law in the Family Law Act that governs how they will divide property if there's a separation and a divorce. There is nothing like that for people that are not married, so people live in common law. I'm going to start uh, with describing the system of law for married couples, because it's easier to then say, if you're common law, you don't have that. So if you're married, all of the assets that are accumulated during the marriage, it doesn't matter who accumulates the assets, you do a tally at the end if there's a separation, and you get a credit for what you brought into the marriage, but everything else that was accumulated, uh, sorry, one more exception, you don't share uh, inheritances received during the marriage. So to recap, if there's a separation and you're married, you do a list of all of the assets that were accumulated during the marriage, You subtract the debts, obviously. Then you subtract the assets that each brought into the relationship. And you also subtract the inheritances received during the relationship. And that gives you a number. And then if one person has a bigger number than the other because they have more assets, then they do what we call an equalization, which is you equalize the numbers at the end of this formula so that they're equal. So they have equally shared the growth of the assets during the marriage. And you can see that it doesn't uh, make a difference if someone was a stay-at-home parent and the other one worked and assets were in that person's name and whatnot, because there's an equalization, because the laws value people's contributions, not just financial contribution, but contributions to the growth of the relationship. Common law partners have nothing like that. It's basically in Ontario, it's different in other provinces, but in Ontario, you basically come out with what you have in your name. This is where it gets really tricky because there was a a very important case in the Supreme Court of Canada not too, too long ago that used the phrase joint family venture, joint family venture. So if people want to Google that joint family venture, that's the principle that was developed over time to apply to common law couples. And it basically says, if in your relationship, in your common law relationship, you kept everything separate and there was no communion of resources, then that's probably how it's going to go in your separation. But if you're a couple that's common law and you're living almost like a married couple and there's a lot of financial integration and one person made contributions to the other, it doesn't have to be financial, but it's usually financial, then there should be an apportioning of the value to the person who made contributions, even if they're not on title of the property. 
Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I just wanted to run through a scenario just to make it 100% clear for our listeners. So let's go through an example. Let's say that I own my own property and had my own assets and all that. And then somebody moved in with me as a common law partner, but their name's not on title on the property. I would imagine that it's still my home at that point in time. I mean, I guess if they contributed to the upkeep and renovations, then they would get a percentage of the increase. But basically, since the properties in the titles in just my name, then they wouldn't be entitled to my property. But in another situation, let's say that I got married to somebody as our matrimonial property, like I already own my own property, they moved into the property that I own already and started living here. And let's say things didn't work out, would that mean that they own half of my property, even though they're not even on title and they didn't even buy the property in the first uh, circumstances. I guess that's kind of a burning question for a lot of people. So maybe you could explain how that scenario would play out for like common law partners versus married people in, in both those scenarios. Yeah, thanks for um, allowing me to clarify because I now recognize that I forgot to give you uh, one specific um, piece of information about married couples and division of property. One exception for married couples is if someone owned a home before the marriage and then the couple is in that same home at the time of separation, then the owner of the home, if say partner number one owned the home before the marriage and they still lived in that same home, that home gets shared 50-50, which is weird, but that's how the law works. So the, the exception for married couples that where I said they get a credit for what they brought into the marriage, that doesn't apply to the matrimonial home if they're still living in it at the time of separation. So that's part of the answer to your question. The other one was uh, for, for common law couples, if one person owns it and the other one lives in there and makes contributions, it that's where it gets really, really uh, complicated and costly to determine what is that person's share of it without a cohabitation agreement. So the, the couple that I told you about that were living together without a, a cohabitation agreement, the problem is, is how do you calculate someone's input? Is the person's time? Is it per hour? Is it uh, the increase in value as a result of the work they did? What if the owner paid for the materials? What if the owner didn't know and didn't keep their receipts? Right? It, you can see how complicated it is. So I had a case where I worked on, just to give you an example of what can go into a cohabitation agreement. So I worked on a case where the owner of the condo had received a lot of uh, financial assistance from, their, from her parents to buy the condo. So obviously there was an interest in protecting that. And then she was uh, moving in, the, 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 her future husband was moving in and they were going to get married and they wanted to regulate what would happen if there was a separation. So it's very similar to if it was common law, you, you want to understand what's going to happen if there's a separation. So they agreed that the future husband could eventually get a value out of living there because he, he is making contributions per month. To he, In this case, he was making kind of, it's not like a rent payment, but he was making a monthly payment. And they wanted to say, okay, if you're together for X amount of years, and you've paid all of this, this money to help me out, I'll give you X percent of the value and so on and so forth. And the, and the value increased over time. So that gives you some ideas of the, the flexibility and the creativity that you can have when you recognize this is a loving relationship. You want to protect the asset, but you also don't want to be stingy and you want to be, right? You want to be generous and there's space for it, but you also want to protect yourself so everyone feels there's a little bit in it for them. 
No, that's great. Thanks for explaining that. So just to recap, if you end up getting married and your partner moves into your property and things don't work out, then that's the matrimonial home. And even if you owned it on your own and it's just in your title, it could split 50-50. Whereas in a common law situation where your partner moves into your property and let's say they didn't contribute anything at all and you just let them live there for free, they don't pay anything in terms of renovations, then that pretty much stays as just your property and they wouldn't be entitled to half of it is that I know the law is not so black and white but is that kind of is that correct yeah I would say in general that's that's a good recap okay great and yeah I just had one follow-up question to that these days people like buying rental properties let's say that the plan is once you get married one partner owns their own property but instead of moving into that property as the matrimonial home and this happens a lot with couples because maybe you don't want to move into the other person's property you want to choose a property that works for both of you. That was maybe just a starter home. So say you own your own property and you get married and then decide to do buy a new matrimonial home. And then you hold on to your previous property that was your previous matrimonial home without selling it and convert it into a rental property. So you've never lived there with your partner. And based on what you've told me, it, it sounds like that property, it wouldn't be considered the matrimonial home. And you had that asset before you came into the relationship. So that wouldn't be divided 50-50. Is, do I have a correct understanding of that? Yeah, that's right. So that uh, the first house that the person was in, would be considered a pre-marriage asset, and then the person would get a, a credit for the value uh, as of the date of marriage. That that's right. That's right. In terms of considering what property to move into, I guess that should be a consideration in terms of you know whether you want to buy your own property together or whether you want to move into the property that you own. And I'm just curious, like in terms of a prenuptial agreement, I mean, I don't want to get too complicated or anything like that, but does the rules with like the matrimonial law always apply? Or if you got like a prenup agreement, could that override the 50-50? Yes, absolutely. You can deviate from the application of the law in a validly prepared marriage agreement. So if you're going to get married, you call it a marriage agreement. If you're living common law, you call it a cohabitation agreement. If you're living common law, and you think you're going to get married, there are provisions that that would make it automatically a marriage agreement uh, if you got married. But to answer your question, a lot of people would enter into a marriage agreement for that very purpose because they don't think that it's fair that all of the other pre-marriage assets would be excluded, but not that particular home. So they would say, when we are going to get married, we'll, we'll do a marriage agreement and we're going to concern ourselves. You can say only with that part. We're going to both agree that if we separate, I have the right to get a pre-marriage credit for the value of this house. You can also put in other things in there, but you don't have to. You could say we're doing one just to deal with that property. That makes sense. So I guess if you want to keep things super simple, it's it's probably just easier to, if you want to hold on to that property, maybe turn it into a rental property and then buy a new matrimonial home together. Because it seems to me if one person owns a home and then you move into it together, it just can create a bit of issues later on if, if things don't work out because it's not so like black and white. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the point of view. There's nothing wrong with your, you know, with, with what you just said, but it's also pretty simple to do a marriage agreement to confirm their understanding that the premarital value will be able to be excluded, right? If it's too many, maybe the listeners don't have enough resources to qualify for 
another mortgage for another house or whatnot, right? Like, so if circumstances don't permit to purchase multiple uh, property, then it is possible to regulate it into a uh, cohabitation or it's going to be a marriage agreement. I guess the bottom line is just get everything in writing because there's kind of default rules that apply by the law and they may not yeah. be according to your wishes, like the 50-50 rule we were talking about. I would think that, I don't know most people, but many people might not think that it would work that way if you own that property and then you move in together and your partner would be entitled to 50% if you were married, but you know, that's the law. So, you know, definitely it's a good idea to speak to an expert like yourself, just to make sure that you have correct understanding and put something in writing. If it wouldn't be according to your wishes, if, if something weren't to work out in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you on that one. Great. Well, Natalie, it's been wonderful chatting with you today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak to your listeners. I would say these days with COVID, it's incredibly busy in my mediation practice. I think people are finding it hard to live together and they they need assistance and there is assistance available. The mediators and lawyers are working remotely. We can help. We can help to organize transition parenting schedules or transition out of a house into a separation even during COVID. So I, I recognize that this is a very difficult uh, time for, for people and there is help available if you if find yourself in a tough situation. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at sean, that's S-E-A-N, at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burnings.